0: You're listening to Author Sketches, an ongoing Christian audio feature that highlights some of the top Christian authors today published by Christian Audio. This is Jason Coker, and I'll be your host today as we talk to Frank Viola, author of several recent books on the shape of the church, including Pagan Christianity, co-authored with George Barna, and Reimagining Church. We caught up with Frank in our studio on April 16th, shortly after the release of his new book titled From Eternity to Here. And discussed some of the themes of his latest work. Your previous books, Pagan Christianity and Reimagining Church, uh, were received really well. So congratulations on that. It's uh, caused a lot of people, I think, in in my experience, to really think uh, through uh, church and why we do what we do in church. And I know that, uh, especially with those first two titles, that was your your goal was to provide a kind of negative argument for what we do in church with pagan Christianity and then rebuild sort of the positive argument with reimagining church. Is that right?
1: That's right. Yes. Pagan Christianity is the deconstructive work and then reimagining church is the
0: constructive piece. Right, right. Well, and I think you've done a great job with that. From Eternity to Here seems to me uh, like a, a much more ambitious project. And one of the things I picked up on Uh, is at the very beginning of the book, in fact, in the preface, you touch on this idea of mission and and being missional. And I know you know that uh, missional right now is uh, one of the buzzwords in evangelical circles, and you you seem to sort of touch right on this. And uh, right out of the preface, you say a a great deal of missional thinking today sees the church through the lens of D.L. Moody, that it's a voluntary association for the saved. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, Frank, if you'd be willing to give us you know, your definition of that concept, what is mission, and what do you think it truly means for a church to be missional?
1: Well, it's a great question. Deal Moody was a great evangelist, mm. but his ecclesiology, his view of the church, and his view of God's overall ultimate purpose, I believe, fell short. Essentially, because he was an evangelist, he saw everything in the Bible as having to do with salvation. Everything had to do with uh, winning souls, as he called it. And when you look at the Bible through that lens, uh, what you're doing is you're starting the story in Genesis three with the fall, and consequently everything then becomes about redemption. It becomes about you know uh, saving the lost. Mm. And D.L. Moody was very influential in the evangelical church, and basically. Uh, has given us the evangelical mind. And so consequently, if you were to ask the average Christian today, who is an evangelical Christian, Protestant Christian, and you said, what is God's purpose? What is he really after? They would say, well, he's, he wants the world saved. He wants to save lost souls. Mm. And that is the thinking in the mind of D.L. Moody. Well, the problem with that is, while God's desire is certainly to save the lost, Uh, That is a true statement. It is correct, but it is not complete. Mm -hmm. I'll run that by again. The saving of lost souls is correct. Uh, God does want that, but it is not complete. God's eternal purpose, as Paul calls it, his eternal purpose goes from eternity past all the way to eternity future, and it runs through the Bible like a straight line, a golden thread, as some have called it, And it goes way beyond the reaches of redemption and salvation of souls. And let me just give our listeners one small point to think about. Mm. The story doesn't begin in Genesis 3. It begins in Genesis 1. In fact, it begins even before that. (laughs) Mm. If you look at Ephesians and Colossians, the story begins before creation. And so consequently, when you open up the Bible and you are staring into genesis one and two you're looking at an earth and you're looking at human beings that don't need salvation the fall hasn't occurred yet Mm -hmm. and consequently that means that god had something else in mind for human beings there was something else on his heart that provoked creation and this is what paul calls his eternal purpose and it goes beyond the salvation of the lost it includes it but it goes way beyond that because it preceded that in the mind and heart of god god was after something before the fall and he's never let go of it and he will eventually have it in the end he right now is working out his eternal purpose and the the funny thing is is that growing up as an evangelical christian and being part of so many different denominations and parachurch organizations and christian movements I never heard anybody talk about the eternal purpose of God. Mm. (laughs) It was always about God uh, wants you to be saved. Okay, I got saved, and now he wants you to save other people. And uh, we also live in a time where there's another emphasis coming forth from some other writers and thinkers and uh, speakers, and that is that God wants to make the world a better place. Mm. And, And that's correct, but it's not complete, because... The world didn't need to be a better place in Genesis 1 and 2. It wasn't corrupt yet. And so what I do in the book is I point out that there are a number of themes in Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall. If you count them up, you're going to have over 30 of them. And I'll just mention a few, and and our listeners will immediately be familiar with them. In Genesis 1 and 2, you have the Tree of Life. Mm hmm you have a flowing river you have a man and a woman you have a marriage you have a wedding you have two becoming one you have in that river three elements gold pearl and precious stone Now that's all in genesis one and two and you can find them and you can count them and you can list them what's so fascinating is that at the end of the bible there are two chapters that end scripture and it's revelation 21 and 22 Mm -hmm. and the fall is over in those two chapters satan has been thrown into the uh, lake of fire in in revelation 20 and so consequently revelation 21 and 22 is after the fall it too has no sin and no fall just like genesis 1 and 2 and what's so amazing is that the same 30 or more themes that you find in genesis 1 and 2 They all reappear. They're right there. In Revelation 21 and 22, you have the tree of life again. You have a flowing river. You have a man and a woman. You have a wedding. You have two becoming one. And then you have gold, pearl, and precious stone. And the Bible is really the unfolding drama, the big, epic, sweeping story of the themes that are in Genesis 1 and 2, traced all the way through and developed to the Old Testament and the New Testament, coming to their high and glorious climax in Revelation 21 and 22. And that is what I call the grand narrative or the meta-narrative of Scripture, of the Bible. And we have, so many of us Christians, and for me for many years, we've totally missed this. And when you look at the grand narrative, when you look at those themes, you come out amazed, dumbfounded, overwhelmed, and you see that God is really after one thing. And this is what the book explores. What is that one What is this eternal purpose that God has been working out from before humans ever fell? And uh, what is so remarkable, too, is that we as Christians are... I don't want to say we're in the center of it. Jesus Christ is in the center of it, mm-hmm. but uh, we're right there with Him. It, it is a book that has caused many readers to write to me and say, "I have fallen in love with the Lord all over again. My life has changed," which mm-hmm. is very humbling to me as, as well as you know encouraging.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and it, one of the one of the hallmarks of this particular book is its expansive uh, view of the church, and I think for some who have had exposure to you in the past, particularly with uh, pagan Christianity, that might take them by surprise that uh, you paint this amazing picture of the church itself. And And I'd like to ask you about a particular quote, actually. On on page 54, you've been writing about this, about uh, the the beauty of the church, the Bride of Christ. And you say, to unpack it all in a sentence... In the eyes of your beloved Lord, you are the most captivating thing that exists in his universe. And, of course, you're talking about the church there. And then you say, how then can you think of yourself as being unworthy in the presence of so great a truth? You know, I I was really struck by that sentence because it made me wonder if uh, part of your motivation in writing this book, Frank, was a, a sense that there were people out there who did feel like they were unworthy in some way, that the church was unworthy. Has, has that been part of your experience, that people have too, too oh, small a vision of the church or themselves in the church?
1: This gets into our identity as Christians and the identity of the Ecclesia, the church of living God, to which we all belong. Hmm. And as I travel and as I meet Christians everywhere, and this was true when I was part of many different denominations and so forth... Most of God's people, the average Christian, is suffering from an identity crisis where, in their minds, they know God loves them. And that's preached everywhere. God loves you, okay? Mm -hmm. The problem is, coupled with that preaching, there is an underlying message that says, Yes, God loves you, but... (laughs) But (laughs) he wants you to do X, Y, and Z. And if you're not doing X, Y, and Z, and this is the subtle message that comes through, then God's not happy with you. Mm. Then you're falling short. And in the psyche of the average Christian, there is an inferiority, condemnation complex, Mm. where, yes, of course God loves me. And there's no real power or impact in the minds and hearts of many believers. They can utter those words, and they can believe them in their heads, but deep down inside they feel like they fall short. Mm and what's being preached in so many churches not all but so many churches on sunday morning if you strip it down to its bare roots the message is you're not doing enough Mm -hmm. you're not working hard enough you're not serving well enough you're not loving him enough and uh... christians walk around with this you know headache of guilt and condemnation and inferiority and unworthiness and so when they read this book Uh, the reader is put on a totally different mountain. And they are viewing from a totally different vantage point. They're looking through the eyes of God. And when we look through the eyes of God instead of our own eyes or the eyes of, you know, the average preacher today, um, it changes everything. And the result is, here's the result. The result is we fall in love with this irresistible Lord who has an an unbelievable view of us, who are part of his body and his bride. And we begin to live out of that vision and that understanding, and it changes our life. You know, the way way to live the Christian life is not trying to attain to some sort of victorious position or place in God where we start to, you know, things start working right and (laughs) we're doing better than we ever have. That's not it the christian life is becoming what you already are it's seeing from that high mountain view seeing through the eyes of god and those are the eyes that those are the only eyes that matter really mm. <laughs> doesn't matter what humans think um it's seeing from his eyes and it's not working to victory it's working from it and i talk a lot about the corporate aspect of the church because we have on the planet today, and this is the result of the Enlightenment and the Reformation in our Western world, but we Christians are very individualistic. Mm -hmm. And most of the sermons we hear today, most of the books we read, it's all about you as an individual Christian living an individual life as an individual. And uh, God's heart is for a body of believers Mm -hmm. who are closely knit together are sharing in an authentic community experience. And uh when you begin to see what the church really is and who the Lord really is, because this this book also presents a very vast and comprehensive and glorious and incredible vision of Jesus Christ and who he is. You know, he's not just the person that died for our sins, boy, he's way beyond that. He existed before creation and he was doing some wonderful things before creation, before we were ever born. That involve us, and uh, when we when we really get a look at that, it it is remarkable. Mm. Uh, but anyway, the point being is that <clears throat> we were made to uh, to have fellowship and shared life with other Christians. And so the book brings this out too that you know it's not just it's not just a part of the bride that he's after; it's the whole thing, and he's wanting a people who who are loving him together. And there's no condemnation in the book; there's no guilt in the book. Mm when people read it they don't feel like okay i got to do this this and this or they don't feel you know unworthy they actually feel like i've got a new bible i've got a new lord i've fallen in love with him and the church <laughs> you know so it does it does the opposite it it causes one's heart to be warmed and awakened to Christ and I, and i'm all i'm doing is i'm quoting letters <laughs> that i've received here you know and it's just mind boggling
0: you know, you, you mentioned in the introduction that anybody who knows you knows you're a hopeless romantic. And that, that definitely comes out in the rest of the book. You know, you paint in these really romantic terms. Um, and I wonder, have you always thought of God and the church in romantic terms? Or is that something no, that came later?
1: No, 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 I haven't. And just for our listeners, the book is broken up into three parts. And the first part is is what you're talking about. It's all about... God's eternal passion to have a bride, a bride for his son. And, and so the Bible then becomes a love story. And you can trace the theme of the Bride of Christ from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22. You know, it's it's all throughout the Scripture. And that's part one. Part two and three are on two different themes. We mm-hmm. can talk about those later, perhaps. Very similar, but not the same. And so the romantic element comes out in the first mm-hmm part of the book the bible is a love story and god is a romantic no i've not always had that vision i was never taught that in my early years as a christian i was taught to think of god more mathematically than romantically mm. <laughs> you know he, he's uh you know he's a logical god and uh, you got to get all your doctrines straight if you're going to make him happy and uh, it's all about the mind and how much scripture you memorize and you know that kind of thing and uh, that's not the Lord at all. He is a, a passionate, relentless lover. He is the bridegroom, the heavenly bridegroom. Um, you find so many stories throughout the Old Testament that reveal his heart as, as one who loves and wants to be loved back, and wants to pour out his love upon his creation and and have that creation love him back. And he's looking for oneness with. With human beings i mean the whole thing about marriage is a picture paul says it in ephesians he says you know the man and the woman he's talking about genesis and adam and eve and he says you know the man is to love the woman and the two become one and they become one flesh and then he says by the way <laughs> i'm not talking about adam and eve <laughs> mm-hmm. behold i show you a mystery i'm speaking about your lord and the church and you just got to stop and drop your head and say, oh, my goodness, this God of ours is a passionate, relentless lover, and he's, he's in love with his bride, and I'm a part of her, you know. And uh, so, no, yeah, I, I didn't, <laughs> didn't always have that understanding. It was in April of 1992 where the lights went on for mm. me, and I got a glimpse of all of this, his eternal purpose, that there was something beyond salvation that was on God's heart. And that salvation was only really the beginning. you know people are saved to come into that eternal purpose. and the problem we have today is that so many Christians, they are saved, yes, but um, they have no concept of his ageless purpose that he is seeking to work out. And when we see it, it, uh, as I say in the book, it, it just wipes everything else off the table and our viewpoint of everything of uh, God. Uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ, the church, the Bible—it all changes, and it becomes a living thing.
0: Mm. When you, and you know, you say that uh, this this uh, realization dawned on you. Uh, the lights turned on. You said in 1992, and you know, in your bio, you mentioned that you uh, walked away from institutional forms of church in 1988. You know, I, I wonder what. What was going on in your life around that time, uh, you know, 1988 uh, to 1992, that that caused this shift in you Mm -hmm. to walk away from more institutional forms of church? What was going on? Well, you
1: know, and it's interesting, and I want your listeners to know that, that, that this book, From Eternity to Here, there's not one word about church forms or mm. church practices. It's its not that at all. My other books deal no, with that. That's
0: reimagining church, really. Yes, yeah,
1: reimagining church and, and pagan Christianity mm. for, for those who are not faint in heart, <laughs> <laughs> are open to have their views challenged on traditions that we bring in. But from eternity to here is, is a story about God's beating heart. and It doesn't deal with church practices, but the, the question that you're asking, uh, and it's kind of an involved story. There were were things that happened in my life, in my Christian walk, and what I observed and what I was reading in the Bible that all came to a head in 1988, where I basically left what I call institutional Christianity and began meeting with Christians in a very authentic, real, and simple way. And uh, I call it organic church life. But that would be a, a very involved story. But people can go to my website, it's frankviola.com, frankviola.com, and uh, they click on that, and the page has many, many free resources on it. And they'll find a little article right there in the front that says, Why I Left the Institutional Church. Mm-hmm. And uh, my whole story is there on that front. In 92, um, what happened was as I began meeting with christians in a very authentic communitarian way you know we we lay our lives down for one another we were discovering christ in ways that we never knew existed we were falling in love with one another taking care of one another and, and reaching out to the poor and the, and the oppressed together as a body not as individuals what ended up happening was i can only say it was the lord he, mm. he began to show me it was through scripture it wasn't no kind of mystical experience it was through scripture well, you know how you're reading the Bible, and all of a sudden it's like somebody turns the lights on and you say, "Oh my goodness, how did I miss this and it was one of those things, and what I saw there is that Genesis one and two mirrored revelation twenty one and twenty two and i and I began to see you know uh, many of the things that were in those two chapters and and one of them was a bride, <laughs> you know and a bridegroom and um and began to trace that theme throughout scripture and and it just blew my mind mm. and uh, later that vision began to expand and i began to see that it's not just a bride and a bridegroom but it's a house for god and it's not just a house but it's a family for god god wants kids he wants a big family jesus christ was the only begotten son but when he was in resurrection when he resurrected when he rose again from the dead he became the firstborn among many brothers and sisters And they're all joined to him and unified with him. And then I saw he wants a body through which to express himself. So those are the four main themes of the book, the bride of Christ, the house of God, the family of God, and the body of Christ. Those four living realities broke on me with such power that for so many years I heard those terms, you know, Bride of Christ, Family of Mm -hmm. God, House of God, and I'd nod my head and say, yes, amen, Mm -hmm. but it had no kind of living power in my heart. And when I began to see the eternal purpose of God unfolded and what those terms really meant from the viewpoint of God, boy, it just totally changed them and charged them with electricity. And now, you know, one of the comments I hear from people is, this book puts a brand new perspective and a new light on terms and ideas that I've been familiar with as a Christian for so many years and brings it all together in a new way. And uh, one person made this comment. He said, it was bringing out the hidden obvious. Mm. And I think that is a brilliant explanation of the book there's no new revelation in it you know there's nothing that's extra biblical in it but you read it and you're thinking okay i've heard all these terms i've read the bible i know these scriptures but my goodness it's this stuff's been hidden (laughs) you know in, in this way the message of the book changed my life in 92 and it's been a growing revelation in me a growing insight and unfolding well i had it on my heart to put it in a book so I began working on that book in 2005, and then just in March it was published mm. and uh, is entitled From Eternity to Here. Because it changed my life so drastically, I wanted others to uh, to be able to
0: to hear it and read it. Mm. You, know, you know, you've know, you been doing this for a long time, um, Frank. I mean, 1988 was basically 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, how has your journey uh, changed and morphed over those 20 years? How were you different? today than you were back in 1988?
1: First of all, I'm still in school. (laughs) I'm still learning. And uh, I would say it's different in two ways. One is there were many questions that I used to know the answers to, but I don't know the answers to today, Hmm. (laughs) if that makes sense. No, it Um, does. uh, I say I don't know a lot more than I did then. Uh, I think I understood all the Questions of the Universe, uh, 1988. Gosh, it was in my twenties, and today I'm I'm perfectly content to say, you know, that's a mystery, and I don't know the answer to it. And um, but one day I will, and I'm perfectly content to live in the presence of mystery and contradiction, even because we have a God of paradox mm-hmm. and a God of mystery. On the other hand, my understanding of the Lord, who He is, has grown much richer. You know, my, my knowledge of who he is, my relationship to him has become much stronger. My love for him, my appreciation for him, and the church, I have learned so much from God's people. Mm. Especially when they have functioned and shared this living Christ. The body has many parts, and I'm only one part of the body of Christ. I'm not the whole thing, you know? And so the Lord is he's never going to reveal all of his fullness to one or two individuals no matter how gifted they are you know they can be a gifted writer a gifted speaker a gifted uh, minister and he's not going to reveal his riches his unsearchable riches as Paul calls them he's not going to reveal all of his fullness to one one member Mm. and uh, so we learn who he is through the body and so I've had twenty years of uh, listening to my brothers and sisters watching them and being in meetings with them where they've shared the riches of Christ with me and so much of what I've learned from the Lord has not only been through my own time with him and time in the scripture and seeking the Holy Spirit and his wisdom, but it's been through other members of the body because we all have Christ in us and we all have a portion of Christ in us. I think I've grown in those two areas. You know, On the one hand, I'm not as confident in certain things as I used to be. And I'm perfectly content to keep those things as a mystery. I still haven't reconciled the Arminianism and Calvinism. <laughs> I don't think anyone else has. And um, Jesus Christ is much larger than our theological systems. He'll break out of them at some point. He is a living person, and He is alive, and we can know Him. And my knowledge of the Lord has grown. And My expectation is in the next 20 years, well, then I'll probably, on the one hand, know a lot less, and Mm. on the other hand, know a lot more.
0: (laughs) I I love that you say that you're still learning, that you're still in school, so to speak. And um, I wonder, who have been some of your biggest influences?
1: I have had many, um, but I think the biggest ones would be a gentleman by the name of T. Austin Sparks, who uh, many of your listeners may not have ever heard of. And he had a tremendous understanding and insight into Christ and his eternal purpose. Watchman is another one, the normal Christian life, uh, had a profound influence on my life as a young believer. Another man named Devon Fromke, who wrote a book entitled Ultimate Intention, was very influential. And then many, many others uh, as well who kind of fall underneath them. And uh, one of the things about the book is, I believe in giving credit where credit's due. So you'll find a, a very exhaustive, mm-hmm. very comprehensive bibliography at the end that just basically includes some books that have influenced my thinking, as well as books on the same theme that I may not have even read, but uh, you know, read all of it. But I am familiar with it enough to to put it there and say, you know, this is on some of the same themes. But I I have learned from people who have been much older than me and who have walked with the Lord longer than me. And I've also learned from the babes in Christ and the new Christians who just excited and learned the Lord and discovered something wonderful about him that blessed my heart.
0: That's fantastic. Uh, One of the things I really appreciate about uh, this book is that you do uh, seem to have a real heart for pointing people Toward a lot of resources, Um, you know, rather than uh, perhaps uh, just quoting uh, at length, uh, you seem to have a real heart for encouraging people to continue that learning process in their own lives as well. Mm -hmm. You, you know, you've uh, obviously dealt with your fair share of criticism, uh, especially with books like *Pagan Christianity*, which, you know, took uh, took the institutional church to task in in a real sense. And I, I heard once in an interview with you that uh, you've even received hate mail from Quakers.
1: <laughs> well, that's a joke. <laughs> of course, it's a it's a
0: great joke. Uh, oh, thank you. Oh, uh, you know, yeah, well, <laughs> for anybody you know, of course, who has a, a Quaker or friend's background, yeah. uh, it, you, you have to laugh when you hear that. But yeah. but of course, you know, it's a joke that um, makes a point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well,
1: also the other part of the joke is I've received bodily threats from the Amish. <laughs>
0: Uh, but I, I wonder, um, you know how how do you uh, how do you handle uh, those sorts of criticisms that that come your way? Um, how have you learned to handle them over the years?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I have been one who has raised the standard in my life, never to respond to criticism uh, or attacks, especially if they're personal so consequently I've learned to ignore most of it I do pay attention to it when it's constructive in other words the the person uh, who is criticizing really has substance in what they're saying and uh, in those cases I I embrace it you know okay well there may be something here for me to look at uh, they're challenging this particular point so let me go ahead and check it out historically or in scripture and you know I'm very open to that mm. But most of the criticism that came toward me and George Barna, who is the co-author of Pagan mm-hmm. Christianity, most of it, to be honest with you, it was made up of ad hominem arguments, which mm-hmm. are personal attacks. You know, uh, well, George and Frank, you know, they were got burned by a pastor once in their mm-hmm. life, and so now they're attacking, you know, the modern institutional form of a pastor, something like that, which is just not true at all, but... You know, people uh, who engage in that have to come up with something to discredit a book. Or the other one is they're straw man arguments. In other words, the arguments are uh, against things that we don't even believe. Mm-hmm. And the book has been misrepresented uh, to say things that we don't say or believe. And so, you know, that's most of it. And so I just ignore it, and I just see... Uh, on the one hand, I ignore it. On the other hand, I see it is the hand of God, you know. I mean, uh, Jesus said, uh, beware when all men speak well of you. And and there's a certain humbling that comes when you're being raked over the coals, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And so just like uh, when, when King David was assaulted by this man who stood out in front of his house and, you know, basically said he was cussing at David and said all kinds of horrible things. And one of David's soldiers said, uh, you want me to go out there and take his head off? (laughs) And David said, no. He said, the Lord thy God, the Lord my God sent him here to cuss at me. (laughs) In other words, he he recognized the sovereign hand of God and that all things that come into our lives, whether good or bad, (laughs) they first pass through his hands. And so, you know, uh, that that helps a lot to see this on a higher level, uh, criticism, attacks. so forth on a, on a higher level, and to take it and deal with it on the higher level. But um, the overwhelming response to Pagan Christianity and Reimagining Church has been very positive. Uh, you know, most of the reviews have been very positive. And mm-hmm. From Eternity to Here is not really controversial at all. Yeah. It's, it's a book that uh, is, is inspiring. So we got, boy, we got people who are mm-hmm. Anglicans and Catholics and Protestants and Evangelicals and Fundamentalists and Reformed, that are just loving it, and, and that's a blessing to me. You know, to be able to to reach all those different kinds of people with a message, and many of the people who endorsed it, which are influential uh, teachers, scholars, pastors, and so forth, other authors, best-selling authors. They all come from different backgrounds, denominations. They're all part of different movements. Southern Baptists. Leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention, and then we got diehard Pentecostals, you know, and charismatics, and uh, emerging guys, and reform guys. And it's just interesting, you know, to see that the message of Jesus Christ, when he is brought forth, that every Christian, no matter what denomination they're part of, every Christian resonates and can say amen to that. Uh, And by the way, just on the criticism part, for your listeners to know this, it's kind of funny. When pagan Christianity came out, and some people were just irate and wrote, you know, all kinds of things. Somebody did a study and found out that 60 percent or more of the people who were reviewing that book had never read it. <laughs> and so, uh, an individual <laughs> made a video on YouTube. Uh, and you can look it up if you go to youtube just look up pagan christianity and you'll see this red video and uh, it is a spoof on all the people that condemn the book who never even read it <laughs> and it, it is hilarious the humor is very subtle but it's very clever and uh, i just tip my hat to the guy who made that it was just awesome
0: you know uh, uh, one, one last question uh, before we wrap it up i one of the things uh, that really strikes me about this book also is that it's uh, most radically optimistic about the church. And, you know, I, I think for those who maybe uh, have seen you as a harsh critic of the church, that that might come as a surprise to them. And and, and also, in the midst of uh, what, what appear to be a lot of... Um, very uh, dire prognostications about the future of the church. You you seem to be in this book, From Eternity to Here, uh, really uh, almost saying the opposite, that that there's a a brilliant future for the church. I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Um, Well,
1: that's a good question, and I think part of it comes down to our semantics, and what the church really is, you know. Uh, for example, in in pagan Christianity and reimagining church in pagan Christianity, particularly, I critique the present form of the church, the what I call the institutional church structure mm-hmm. and traditions. There, I am not critiquing the Church of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm who is his bride, who is made up of his people. I'm talking about a particular system or way of doing things, practices, traditions. You know, um, Martin Luther uh, loved the church. Mm. He loved God's people. He loved the Lord. He had a glimpse into who the body of Christ was, but he criticized the present practice of, the catholic church you know he criticized the present institutional church of his day and i'm not comparing myself to luther in the sense that you know i couldn't fill the man's shoes but i'm just saying you can critique church practices okay religious practices it's probably a better word <laughs> mm-hmm. you can critique uh, religious practices and yet love fervently the church which is God's people. So what pagan Christianity does and a little bit in Reimagining Church is it's really addressing practices. Does God really want, you know, the Church to function this way? Does God want us to observe these practices? From Eternity Here doesn't talk about that at all. It's looking at who the Church really is. It's mm-hmm. looking at God's people together. It's looking at um, the Bride of Christ, the Body of Christ, the Family of God. And so... When it comes to church practices, we have a revolution going on in our day. Many Christians are questioning the present traditional practices of the church and comparing those practices with the Bible. On the other hand, when it comes to who the church is, this radiant bride who God is maturing you know, for the end, I'm very optimistic about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I see her growing into her glory into the image of christ progressively slowly yes but progressively and i think god will for sure in the end get his eternal purpose Mm. he will have it fulfilled it's been formed in christ but it will be fulfilled and established and consummated in the end and i'm very optimistic
0: about that Mm. i think that's well said well, I want to thank you for the time that you've spent with us, Frank. For those of you who are listening, we've been talking to Frank Viola, whose latest book is From Eternity to Here uh, by David Cook Publishers, and it's available uh, on Amazon as as well as your local bookstore. Is that right, Frank?
1: Yeah, uh, virtually all local bookstores have it, Lifeway, Berean, Family Christian, uh, Amazon.com, Parable.com, okay. and it's also available at a great discount at the site, from eternitytohere.org. That's easy to remember. Mm It's the title of the book.
0: (laughs) And, of course, it is available uh, for audiobook download Uh here at christianaudio.com. That's right. Frank, thanks again for spending time with us, and uh, we hope that you have a great day. We sure have enjoyed talking to you today.